Have you ever longed to escape reality or fantasized about stepping into someone else's shoes, even for just a little while? Hi, I'm Laura Mullen. And I'm Chris Hawley. We host CBC's Play Me, the immersive podcast that transforms theater into addictive audio fiction. Join us for a new season and disappear into a world rich with drama, where every show delivers hypnotizing stories and unveils intriguing characters with secrets. Play me wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. I'm Eleanor Wachtel, and this is Writers & Company from the Archives. Today, Sigrid Nunez. Her eighth title, The Friend, won the 2018 U.S. National Book Award. She followed it with What Are You Going Through? Now she has a new novel, The Vulnerables. I remember when Sigrid Nunez's The Friend came out, and three very different people, friends, told me how great it was and how I had to read it, and I didn't have to be a dog person to enjoy it. I'm happy to report that it's all true, and the literary world seems to agree. Not only did the novel win the National Book Award, but it also attracted rave reviews and was hailed as a subtle, unassuming masterpiece, a poignant exploration of love, friendship, death, grief, art, and literature. And it was translated into more than 30 languages. But there was another aspect to the book's breakout success, as the New York Times headline proclaimed, With the friend, Sigrid Nunez becomes an overnight literary sensation 23 years and eight books later. Because although her earlier work was well-received and well-respected, a bestseller was a new phenomenon. Sigrid Nunez was born in New York in 1951, the youngest of three, to a Panamanian Chinese father and German war bride mother. Her father worked in hospital kitchens and as a waiter in various Chinese restaurants. Sigrid grew up in the projects, but went on to study English at Barnard College and later got a master's in fine arts from Columbia University. When she graduated, she worked as an editorial assistant at the New York Review of Books. Her first, admittedly autobiographical novel, A Feather on the Breath of God, was named the Association of Asian American Studies' Best Novel of the Year. She's also won the Whiting Award, the Rome Prize, and various other literary awards. She's the author of a fictional biography about Virginia and Leonard Wolfe's pet, Mitz, the Marmoset of Bloomsbury and a highly regarded novel about friendship and political activism in the late 1960s and its aftermath called The Last of Her Kind. But more recently, Sigrid Nunez has returned to an intimate voice, free-ranging, a kind of faux memoir that harks back to her first book. The Friend revolves around a woman whose best friend and mentor has killed himself. Nunez said she wanted to explore the emotional aftershock of a suicide. To complicate the story, and make it quite marvelous, the narrator agrees to take care of the dog her friend had adopted, an 180-pound Great Dane. Sigrid Nunez followed up this remarkable novel with another work that features a similar voice and sensibility. What Are You Going Through also deals with death and friendship and grief, but this time the connection is with a female friend who's dying of cancer. Both novels are rich with allusions to movies, books, ideas, political urgency, imbued with Nunez's capacious intelligence. 
I spoke to Sigrid Nunes from her apartment in New York in 2021. Just a note, there will be some discussion of suicide. Your two most recent novels are kind of companion pieces. They, they speak to each other and to us in, in different ways. They also converse with other literary works, including fairy tales. What about fairy tales? Why do they have such a presence in your work? I think that it's because fairy tales were some of my earliest reading, and they were you know, books that were read to me. So they were, you know, more or less my my introduction to literature. And from the beginning, I loved fairy tales. My mother would read them to me. Then I one, once I learned to read myself, I would read them over and over again. I'd go to the library and come home with the red book of fairy tales, blue book of fairy tales, yellow book of fairy tales, etc. <laughs> And so, you know, that was a huge influence on me. And I think it was also because of that, you know, that, that wonderful thing about, about fairy tales, the way they ring so true, and the way from reading them, you, you know that anything can happen, no matter how strange. I also love the idea of metamorphosis, which is so much a part of fairy tales, that a person could become a tree or a bird... Uh, there are always lots of animals in fairy tales, and I, I love stories about animals and animals themselves. So, um, yeah, I think I feel like fairy tales have always been with me and have always been an inspiration to me. Because in, in your latest book, What Are You Going Through? Two Old Friends Put Aside Other More Contemporary Reading in Favor of a Volume of the world's best folk and fairy tales, stories of gods and heroes, princes and peasants, giants and little people, witches, tricksters, and animals, animals, animals. Now, you mentioned ringing so true, but it's interesting because at the same time, metamorphosis is so fantastic. So what are the, the pleasures and truths that these stories offer? Well, there are lots of things. For example... You know there are there are these morals in general that uh, if you behave one way, you'll be punished. If you behave another way, you'll be rewarded. I mean, you know, like uh, one of the basic stories from fairy tales and myth is that uh, a stranger appears uh, in some kind of need. You know, uh, very poor and troubled and desperate for a cup of water or a piece of bread or a roof for a night and uh, you know certain people behave very selfishly and don't want to help this person and other people behave with goodness and generosity and then it turns out in fact that the person was some kind of very powerful person in disguise a king or a god and uh, then there's a reward, and very often that reward will be a marriage to that person if the good person was a, a young woman. And uh, in a lot of fairy tales, cleverness is rewarded. You know, there's some kind of, of difficulty, some kind of challenge, some kind of test, and then, uh, you know, if you if you show a certain amount of cleverness, you win, but also, very often, 
you get help from some being in the animal world to help you get through the test or some supernatural figure. But, you know, in, in general, there's a kind of reality in the fairy tales because of the lack of sentimentality. I mean, bad things always happen in fairy tales, however they might end. And this is presented as the way of the world, as I say, without any sentimentality. And that, I think, is a, is a, is a very important idea to learn early on. Children love fairy tales in general, you know, because they, they see that truth in there. They see, they see the real world reflected in those stories. They don't really need to be protected from that in the way that adults sometimes think. The narrator in What Are You Going Through says that her own favorite story is The Six Swans from the Brothers Grimm. Is that yours too? I think that that is, or at least it was, my favorite fairy tale. I was very, very taken by that for, for a number of reasons. There was the reason that I give in the novel, this idea that there was the one brother who remains part, one, one wing remains, so he keeps part of his swan being. But it's a very beautiful story. First of all, there's the loyalty of the sister, who has been made to keep a vow of silence while all this long time passes. Her, her brothers have been bewitched and turned into swans. And she has to keep this vow of silence, as I recall the story. And meanwhile, she's knitting these, these garments for them. And um, when she won't break her vow of silence, she's told she's going to be burned as a witch and she's actually on the pyre, still knitting away, trying to get that last garment done. When the swans appear, and they land on the ground around her, and she throws over them each a garment, but the last one isn't finished yet. And so that brother uh, has a, well, there was a sleeve missing, <laughs> so he, he keeps his wing. But it's a, it's, a, it's a very, very beautiful story. Uh, and I've always had a thing about swans anyway. So I think that might very well be my favorite fairy tale. What, what, what kind of thing about swans? Just their sheer beauty? Yes, their, their beauty. Yeah, they, they're, I mean, they're very, very magical creatures. I uh, also studied ballet when I was young, and there is always that association of swans with uh, ballet, so that's part of it. No, not only are there references to fairy tales in, in both your recent novels, the stories themselves in some ways have the, the shape of fairy tales. At certain moments, the central characters even look at their own experience that way. For example, when the narrator of The Friend observes that she's in one of those stories where, as you were describing earlier, a, a person is put to a test, one of those fables where someone encounters a stranger, could be human, could be beast, who's, who's in need of help. Have there been times in your own life when you've imagined yourself in a fairy tale? 
not since I was a, a very little girl. And then I wouldn't, I wouldn't have been thinking of it as being in a fairy tale so much as being in some kind of magical situation. Like I was the kind of child who was always imagining that she was some kind of a creature, always playing pretend, now I'm a horse, now I'm a rabbit, or the mother of my stuffed animals, and my stuffed animals came alive during the night. I remember I held on to that a fantasy for a long time. That was a, you know, that that was a part of, of, of childhood imaginative play, imaginary friends. But it was it's different from actually imagining imagining yourself in a story. For me, it was, you know, more like imagining that this was really the way the way life was. I was also I I I remember, you know, that I I, I associated my mother with uh, witches. In fact, um, partly because she had such a way with animals and where we lived. She was so well known for being able to help animals that were in trouble that people who lived in our area would bring her if they found a hurt animal or a stray animal, they would bring that animal to her. So I used to think she maybe she was a witch. Well, well the good kind, if she was a healer. The good, the good kind. Yeah, she was a healer, but also because I, I, you know, she, you know, when you're you're a child, you do things. You say, well, how on earth I, I hid that so well. I, 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 I cleaned that mess up so well. Uh, how, how does she know? How did she know? Um, so it always seemed to me that she had she had very keen senses and sort of supernatural powers because I was totally unable to put anything over on her. She's extremely an extremely aware person. She, she was very very sharp. Sigrid Nunez, you've said your novel The Friend began simply enough as a story about a woman grieving for a friend who killed himself. What was it about that situation that you wanted to explore? Well, that came from the fact that around the time before I started writing that book, I was aware that any number of people that I knew had it in their heads that they might commit suicide. They weren't making a cry for help. They weren't making an attempt. I'm not talking about that kind of situation. But they had thought how that might be how they would leave this life at some time. And that struck me as, you know, quite remarkable. And in fact, I had actually finished the book when one of those people did commit suicide. So, so it was just in my mind, the possibility of that. When you say remarkable, I mean, were you surprised that, or concerned that they could imagine ending their lives that way? Well, I was I was certainly concerned, but I, I I I probably wasn't that surprised because I I I feel like so many people actually do have suicidal thoughts, even if they never actually come close to it. I I um it's not like I've known many many people who've committed suicide, but uh, you know only I think about two weeks ago. Uh, my upstairs neighbor 
shot himself to death first thing in the morning, and he was someone I knew. He wasn't just a neighbor. So I don't know. I guess the for me the fact that uh, so many people do take their lives, and the fact that it's uh, it's such a strange thing. No matter no matter what, no matter how much you see of it, you know it is self murder, self homicide. It just uh, it's so against nature. And as I say somewhere, humans are the only animal that commit suicide. So I, I feel like uh, it's, it's endlessly fascinating because um, it always remains a mystery, it seems to me. You can never really, I don't think you can ever really understand what somebody is going through when they, when they come to that extreme, except in cases where, where, where the person is in fact dying I would say, or something has happened to them and they leave a note and they explain it. But so often that's not how it happens. The person does not leave a note, or even according to the people closest to that person, clues that this was going to happen. I also think the reason why I was so drawn to it as a subject is because so many writers commit suicide. Do you have any theories why that is? I don't really. I mean, but that's what I mean about the mystery of suicide. I mean, you know, people say that it's partly because it's a, you have to be alone a lot in order to be a writer, but so many writers, uh, you know, live very, very uh, rich social lives and have families and so on, even if they are doing their, their work in the morning alone. But it is true that depression is something that does afflict writers, many writers, and that would, of course, help explain it. And alcoholism has afflicted many writers as well. So that's certainly part of it. Reading this pair of novels, The Friend and What Are You Going Through, is like listening to someone share confidences. There, there's that intimacy and the irresistible pull of the tale unfolding. Can you talk about the voice in these books? It's, it's one that you say you've rediscovered. Well, it isn't something that I think about consciously before I, I sit down to write. You know, I knew I wanted... I was writing The Friend, and I knew it was going to be in the first person. And I wanted it to have the tone of an intimate voice, the same tone you might have in a love letter, a hushed, intimate voice. Now, I didn't intend to have the entire narrative addressed to the mentor who commits suicide as in a love letter or any kind of letter. I never thought of it as a letter. It was just the tone I was after. So for part of the book, she says you, she's talking to him. But for whole other sections of the book, it becomes a straightforward first-person narrative. He's kind of disappeared as the addressee. And it was when it was finished that... I realized how close it was 
to my very first novel, A Feather on the Breath of God, which was published in 1995. And I realized that it was the same voice, the same sensibility, perhaps the same narrator, older. And then when I started What Are You Going Through?, I recognized fairly early on that this was the same voice as the friend and that it was also the same sensibility and whatever the narrator of what are you going through the way she thinks the way she reflects the way she sees thing the way she observes things those are all exactly as the narrator of the friend would also think and reflect and observe. So as you you said earlier on that the two books seem to be in conversation with each other or a a, a pair and and that is absolutely right not planned but um but I I I feel that what are you going through came out of the friend when I finished the friend I thought oh you know, I've gone all the way back to my own literary beginnings here. And is that that first novel was autobiographical? So is should we? I know the, the what happens in these novels didn't happen to you, but in terms of the person who's thinking and reflecting, and as you said, it the voice, and is that very close to your own? It is. My first book is the only book that I've written that could really be called auto-fiction, even though a certain amount of it is fictional. And none of the other books could be called auto-fiction. However, all of them have elements from my own life. All of them have some autobiography in them. And the most recent ones, uh, The Friend and What Are You Going Through, the huge autobiographical thing there is the sensibility you know the the way these narrators see the world and human experience in general is is certainly my my own the novel began with your thinking about friends and suicide but then as you've described it a dog simply showed up what happened yes i you know i don't make outlines or big plans before i write a book it's just it's just not the way I work. And so I started this book with the suicide of the narrator's friend. And it wasn't until I was 30 pages in, I, at a certain point I decided at the funeral, or the memorial service rather, that wife number three would say to the narrator, do you mind if I call you? I want to talk to you about something and the narrator has no idea what, and she goes to meet this woman. And so then I had to think, well, what? What is she, what are we going to have her want from the narrator? And then, you know, it was a kind of almost like a childish feeling. I thought, oh, I could I could have a dog in my novel. I could have a great big dog in my novel. And... So I decided that that's what would come next. And I, you know, I I do love animals, and I've always wanted to write a book that had an animal that was a very important 
character, a, a dog, which, you know, would be the most obvious choice because we have such a special relationship with dogs. People do. And I had, I had written, you know, my little, my little book about uh, Virginia and Leonard Wolf's pet marmoset. But, uh, you know, that was, that was, that was really largely nonfiction. I didn't invent that story. That's really in the Bloomsbury archives. And I enjoyed that very much, writing about the wolves' pets, their monkey, their dogs. So I, 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 I always wanted, after that, I think that was published, I think, in 1998, I always thought, oh, it would be wonderful to have an, another animal in one of my books. Well, this is, as, as you're saying, it's, it's a very impressive dog, a giant dog, a Harlequin Great Dane, uh, meaning you know, it's a striking white coat with black splotches weighing 180 pounds. Why this particular type of dog? For one thing, I, it's a, that's a breed that I really love. Uh, I, I never had a great... I had a dog that actually appears in the book. That part is autobiographical. I call the dog... Uh, half Great Dane, half German Shepherd, and my family got a Great Dane, but I had I was already out of the house by then. Uh, he was a huge, beautiful uh, dog, not a Harlequin, named Taurus. And so, first, it was the the idea that her taking this dog is supposed to be a kind of test for her. It's supposed to be difficult. It's supposed to be a challenge. And so I knew I wanted it to be a big dog, a, 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 a troublesome dog, and not just some dog she could carry around in her purse, but one that was old, for one thing, and uh, ate a lot, expensive, and that she couldn't hide, even though she lived in a place where her lease stipulated that she could not have a dog. So... That made sense then to have it to be this very large dog, and then I wanted the the harlequin because I it, it was I wanted to have that visual image. Uh, it is such a striking image, the harlequin Dane. And there's every reason why the narrator shouldn't agree to take Apollo uh, when asked by her late friend's wife to to take in that that great Dane that he'd rescued. And, and and also she you know she lives in a small rent controlled apartment that doesn't allow dogs but she takes him why well when i came up with this idea i was thinking what would you do what would you do by you i mean everyone she's trapped into it to some extent i mean why does she do it at that that at that moment it's partly because the wife says that she's she cannot keep that dog. It was not her dog. It was her husband's dog. She tells the narrator that he had said to her, his wife, if anything ever happens to me, the narrator will take the dog. That, that came out of the blue. Nobody had ever said anything like that to the narrator before. But I think she takes it because she doesn't really know what else to do. She doesn't... She, she can't, I mean, she's in a certain state. She's grieving. She's bewildered. She doesn't know why her friend committed suicide. And now this has been thrust on her. 
if she doesn't take the dog, the dog is uh, going to end up in a, in a, in a, in a, who knows, the dog will probably be destroyed. And I guess she just doesn't know how to say, how to say no, but there's something unbearable to her about if her friend could somehow know what happened to the dog, how, how terrible that would be for him. It's silly, of course, because he's dead, so he's beyond feeling. But I think it's really just that she just, she it's not so much that she feels for the dog at that moment. She just somehow feels helpless to, to do anything else. Also, I think she's not, she's not thinking straight also, she's, she, as her friends keep telling her. But I think that she's not thinking about the future. She just at that moment, you know, one day at a time, as it were. And then, of course, she, she ends up developing a, a serious relationship with this dog. The narrator meditates on our fascination with animals and their appearance in myth and folklore, and in particular, the canine-human bond. What makes it so interesting and, and unique? Well, we, we really do have a, such a special relationship with, with dogs. You know, we've, we've made them, what the, we've bred them to be a certain kind of creature, and their passionate attachment to people, I think there isn't really anything else like that. You know, their, their incredible loyalty, their uncritical attitude towards people. I think that, uh, you know, I've, I've just known so many people who have loved the dogs in their, in their lives so much and been so loved by those dogs. And, I think it's the only animal that we have that kind of relationship to. I mean, people love their cats too, and I think that there's nothing more special than than the feline. But there's something about the friendship, you know, that's a, that, that, that that's a very, very real, solid friendship that a person has with a dog. And people, they, you know, when they lose the friendship of the dog because they lose the dog they suffer a lot and don't always show it because they feel a certain amount of shame about it i shouldn't be grieving this much i it was just a dog it was just an animal and not another person and i say this because i have received so much mail from people so much email from people who read the friend who've told me about this, about their relationship with the dog, very often about, about losing the dog, and, and how incredible their grief was. And that, that does, I find that incredibly moving. Could you read from The Friend? This is a scene from fairly early in the novel where the narrator has just brought the dog Apollo home to her apartment. And uh, just as there's a mention of uh, Greyfriars Bobby, and that was a Sky Terrier who spent uh, every night over 14 years at the grave of his master who died in Edinburgh in 1858. Okay. Mostly he ignores me. He might as well live here alone. He makes eye contact at times, but instantly looks away again. His large hazel eyes are strikingly human. They remind me of yours. 
I remember once when I had to go out of town, I left my cat with a boyfriend. He was no cat lover, but later he told me how much he'd liked having her because he said, I missed you, and having her was like having a part of you here. His expression doesn't change. It's the expression I imagine in the eyes of Greyfriars Bobby as he lay on his master's grave. I have yet to see him wag his tail. His tail isn't docked, but his ears have been cropped, sadly unevenly, leaving one a little smaller than the other. He has also been neutered. He knows to stay off the bed. If he climbs on the furniture, said wife three, all you have to do is say down. Since he moved in with me, he has spent most of his time on the bed. The, the first day, after sniffing around the apartment, but in a listless way without any real interest or curiosity, he climbed onto the bed and collapsed in a heap. Down died in my throat. I waited until it was time to go to sleep. Earlier he had eaten his bowl of kibble and allowed himself to be walked, but again without seeming to care or even notice what was happening outside. Not even the sight of another dog could rouse him. He, on the other hand, never fails to draw attention. It will take getting used to this feeling of being a spectacle, the constant photo snapping, the frequent interruption. How much does he weigh? How much does he eat? Have you tried riding him? He walks with head lowered like a beast of burden. Back home, he went straight to the bedroom and threw himself on the bed. The exhaustion of mourning was my thought. For I am convinced that he has figured it out. He is smarter than those other dogs. He knows that you are gone for good. He knows that he is never going back to the brownstone. Sometimes he lies stretched full out facing the wall. After a week, I feel more like his jailer than his caretaker. Sigrid Nunez reading from her novel, The Friend. When, when the narrator first takes the dog home, she w talks about waiting for a miracle that will allow her to keep him without losing her apartment. But in the way of a fairy tale, a different kind of magic takes place. Taking care of this animal becomes transformative for her. Can you talk about how that works? Well, that I really believe in. I, uh, you, you know, I, uh, this has been said a lot and shown a lot that dogs and other animals, but again, with dogs, it's a, it's a very particular relationship, can really help people through hard times. They are comforters. And, you know, they, they understand clearly when they are needed, and they have patience. I mean, not every breed, of course. You know, there's a warmth to a dog that, that it, it feels sympathetic. It feels caring. So, you know, when people are, are suffering, you know, they do, they do bring, bring dogs in. And um, I really saw that as part of what, would, what seemed a completely realistic situation in the book, that if she had this dog, that it would be a great help to her. And it was. And also she's, she's in this state where she's, uh, 
you know, she's in a state of mourning and she's not seeing people. You know, she's she's not going out. She's going to work a little bit. Uh, she does go to teach her class, but she's very isolated. And if she didn't have the dog, she probably would have been isolated without the dog and would not have gotten through her grief well at all. Hi, I'm Caitlin Prest, and I am here in your ear to tell you about a very incredible new show called Asking For It. Asking For It is a darkly comedic series that follows a queer femme singer whose history of violence finds her no matter how many times she runs away. It has an original soundtrack, and it'll make you laugh, cry, and feel a little bit less alone. Asking for it. Subscribe now. Sigrid Nunez, as you said, the, the voice of the narrator in both The Friend and your latest novel, What Are You Going Through?, is an older version of the voice in your autobiographical first novel, A Feather on the Breath of God, which, like a lot of first novels, was a story you had to get out of your system, your own family story. I'd like to hear a bit about your family. What was what was it like to grow up with immigrant parents from very different cultures? I mean, can you talk a bit about them and their backgrounds, uh, starting with your, your father? Well, my father was half Panamanian and half Chinese. He was Chinese-identified. That was his language. He, he did not speak Spanish at all. That was his community. He worked in, in Chinese restaurants his, his whole life. He was working as an illegal alien in New York's Chinatown when World War II broke out. And uh, he ended up in the army and with the occupying forces in southern Germany, which is where he met my mother. So she was a German war bride. They then came back he he brought her to the states and they lived in a uh, housing project uh, the Brooklyn housing project in Fort Greene in the Fort Greene houses and then they moved to another housing project on Staten Island when i was about about 2 so well, there were three daughters and i was the youngest and um my mother's english became quite good, uh, even though she always had this very heavy German accent. My father's English was, was never good, but I always, you know, I was always fascinated by the idea about how they met, because when they did, they didn't have a common language, because uh, her, her, all she had was some school English, and he, his English was quite, was quite poor. So it was a, you know, it was a, it was a, a conflicted household. You know, the, my mother's idea was that she had these three children and that the children were hers, and she wanted to raise them as little German children, even though she never taught us the, the language when we were young. And my father was was a very withdrawn person. He uh, he worked all the time. He worked seven days a week, and um, he, he always remained at such a distance from us. You could not get him to talk about his past, his life. So he was always a, a, a mystery to me, and that is one of the main reasons why I wanted to 
write about him. That book, uh, A Feather on the Breath of God, begins the first time I heard my father speak Chinese was at Coney Island, which is absolutely true. And my sisters and I, we said to our mother, why is daddy singing? That's the way we heard it. We had run into some Chinese men there, and they were friends of his from Chinatown. We never saw them again, nor did we ever meet any of his Chinese friends. So he had this whole separate life. And I always wondered, as I, I talk about this in the book, if, if it would have been different if, if we had been sons instead of daughters, or if I had been a son, if maybe there would have been more of a relationship. But it was a very, the household was, it was a very small apartment. Nevertheless, it was a very separate, very separate world, the worlds of my mother and father. And they did not get along. They stayed married, but I, but I would never call it a happy marriage. It was a, it was a very unhappy marriage. So, I don't know, I, I, I certainly was always closer to my mother but it was, it was, it was it, you know, it became a very painful thing as I got older because my father died when he was when he was sixty two. I was in graduate school at the time, and uh, you know, it. I just felt much later when I was thinking about him that it was you know too late. Uh, you know, I I I wished that I had been more pers persistent in trying to find out more about his his life when I was younger because now all these questions would remain unanswered. I never met any of his relations. I never met any family on, on my father's side. Your, your mother you're saying, was German. What did you know about her side of the family? Well, I met my, uh, when, when we were very young, my mother took us to Germany, and I met my grandmother. My grandfather had, had died by that time. But uh, by the time I was old enough to, to travel to Germany again, there was I just had one uncle and an, an aunt there. So I was never close to those relations either. But my mother was very, um, she was a very nostalgic person. And so I was always hearing about uh, Germany, German life, uh, German things. Uh, she did certain, for example, you know, in, in the United States, we, we celebrate uh, Christmas. Christmas morning is when you open presents, but we did on Christmas Eve because that's how the Germans do. We didn't celebrate Thanksgiving, even though here we were an American family. So, as I say, she she just uh, she, she 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 was very very nostalgic, and she was also very very she she did talk a lot. She was somebody. She's the opposite of my father. She talked all the time, but I, as I say, I didn't I didn't really meet. I didn't really get to know my German relations either. How do you think you were affected by, be, I mean, being aware of your mother's disappointment in her marriage? Well, I'm not sure, you know, I mean, I saw lots of other marriages as well. And I feel like what I've seen in marriage reflects is reflected very much in the divorce rate, which I, I believe here is 50-50. Is and I suppose, 
you know, that's what I saw. It's, it's so, so many marriages did, did not seem happy or did not seem to work out. So, you know, I didn't, I did, yeah, I certainly, when I was much younger, I certainly thought that I would marry at some point and have a family, but I never did. I don't think, though, that that's because of that unhappy marriage. I have two sisters and they both married, so. Uh, but it's certainly always something that, uh, as I say, I, my first book I wrote about that marriage, that that was something that did obsess me or I wouldn't have written about it. I wanted to think and reflect about that marriage and try to figure something out and remember certain aspects of childhood and what it was like to grow up, you know, the child of, of immigrants who were not from the same place. Is, I think it's very different when they're both you know, from the same world, speak the same language, have the same culture. I, I will say that when when the book was published and I would give readings from it, quite a few Chinese Americans would say to me, you know, your father was not as unusual or strange or odd or eccentric as you think he was. A lot of that was because of his culture, about which, you know, I, I, I did not know a lot. For them, there was nothing unusual about the fact that he had never said to his children, I love you. That is, that is not uncommon among Asian parents. So, in a way, there was really nothing nothing to do, you know, growing up, except accept it. This is this is the way it is because when you're when you're that young, you don't you don't try to change your parents. I mean, un unless you're very unusual, I think you find yourself just having to accept it and and make your own life out of it. I guess. Sigrid Nunes, your latest novel, What Are You Going Through? also uses that straightforward narrative voice to explore another apparently simple idea, and it turns into something rich and moving. It's about friendship, love, and death, and, and about stories themselves. The book began, you've said, with the first line, I went to hear a man give a talk. Could you read from the opening? Okay. I went to hear a man give a talk. The event was held on a college campus. The man was a professor, but he taught at a different school in another part of the country. He was a well-known author who, earlier that year, had won an international prize. But although the event was free and open to the public, the auditorium was only half full. I myself would not have been in the audience I would not even have been in that town had it not been for a coincidence. A friend of mine was being treated in a local hospital that specializes in treating her particular type of cancer. I had come to visit this friend, this very dear old friend whom I had not seen in several years and whom, given the gravity of her illness, I might not see again. It was the third week of September, 2017. I had booked a room through Airbnb. The host was a retired librarian, a widow. 
From her profile, I knew that she was also the mother of four, the grandmother of six, and that her hobbies included cooking and going to the theater. She lived on the top floor of a small condo about two miles from the hospital. The apartment was clean and tidy and smelled faintly of cumin. The guest room was decorated in the way that most people appear to have agreed will make a person feel at home. Plush area rugs, a bed with a hedge of pillows, and a plump-down duvet, a small table holding a ceramic pitcher of dried flowers, and, on the nightstand, a stack of paperback mysteries. The kind of place where I never do feel at home. What most people call cozy, gemütlich, Hugo, others find stifling. A cat had been promised, but I saw no sign of one. Only later, when it was time for me to leave, would I learn that, between my booking and my stay, the host's cat had died. She delivered this news brusquely, immediately changing the subject so that I couldn't ask her about it, which I was in fact going to do only because something in her manner made me think that she wanted to be asked about it, and it occurred to me that maybe it wasn't emotion that had made her change the subject like that, but rather worry that I might later complain. Depressing host talked too much about dead cat, the sort of comment you saw on the site all the time. In the kitchen, as I drank the coffee and ate from the tray of snacks the host had prepared for me, while she, in the way recommended for Airbnb hosts, made herself scarce, I studied the corkboard where she posted publicity for guests about goings-on in town, an exhibition of Japanese prints, an arts and crafts fair, a visiting Canadian dance company, a jazz festival, a Caribbean culture festival, a schedule for the local sports arena, a spoken word reading, and that night at 7.30, the author's talk. Sigrid Nunez reading from the opening to her latest novel, What Are You Going Through? The man we later discover is the narrator's ex-partner, and it's it's quite a talk he gives, cyber-terrorism, bioterrorism, uh, unmitigated disaster, arguing, among, among other things, against human reproduction. The narrator's ex, he has no name, he's warning about the end of things. But for her, the end of things is focused much more narrowly on, on her old friend who's dying of cancer, the one that she's come to visit. In your previous novel, as, we, as we've just discussed, suicide was the theme. Here, it's assisted death or euthanasia. What made you want to explore this idea? Well, you know, it's, it's interesting because here again, uh, I found myself saying, what would you do? What would you do? In The Friend, it was about the dog who's going to take this dog and the responsibility for it and here the question was what would you do if someone were to ask you to help them in this way I guess this is also something that you know has been on my mind like like suicide I mean this this thing this one experience that uh that we all share everybody does have to leave this life at some point and you know, I I think a lot of people, especially as as one gets older, 
you know, you you start thinking about about dying, and uh, when you do start thinking about how you might end up leaving this world, you you do then wonder about well, if I had a terminal illness, and I knew for sure that there was no hope. I mean, how would I feel about euthanasia? How would I feel about uh, taking my own life instead of going through agony? And also not being myself at the end, you know, uh, be, because being in too much pain. Um, so it's, it's something that I, I have thought about, and I think most people I know have thought about it, even if they're not having big conversations about it. So as I say, I don't make plans when I, when I begin a book, and so I certainly didn't begin there. But I did know right right early on that that there would be this friend who who had terminal cancer and I just I just let my mind go from there you know one thing leading to another the, the narrator is ambivalent at first about helping her friend and her friend is not asking her to actually to to help her kill herself but just to be, to be there to be there with her because other people closer to her have refused saying that they they, they couldn't bear it they would try to stop her did you, by the end, answer for yourself what you would do, how you, you think you would handle it? No, I really don't know. I really don't know. You know, there is something, again, very similar to the friend. You know, the narrator says yes because she doesn't know how to say no. I mean, there's something, this narrator in What Are You Going Through, there's, there's a certain level of incompetence and there's a certain amount of passivity. So when she, first she agreed, well, first she's horrified that she's being asked this. Then she thinks briefly about it. Then her friend says, you know, you have a little time to think about it. But then she decides she'll do it. Then she actually changes her mind, but doesn't know how how she could possibly back out now. And then her friend says, well, you know, I'm I'm tired and I'm telling you, if you if you don't want to do it, I, I'm going to do it anyway. So then I don't have anybody with me. But but she kind of says very impatiently, whatever. And then she decides that she will stay with her and be with her. Uh, as you, as you say, she the, the she her friend is not asking the narrator to to give her the drugs or even to be there at that at that moment. She just wants the narrator to be with her in that house that they go to stay in and help her with these final things that she has to do. And then uh, the friend says, at some point, I will take these drugs, and I, but I won't tell you the exact moment when I'm going to do it. Um, and I, honestly, I don't, I can't say that I know what I would do, but there are a few places in the book where the narrator says, I'm doing this because I would want the same thing she wants, and I would want somebody to be that friend to me. And I certainly identify with that. And then when she meets her ex briefly for a coffee, and he knows what she's doing, that she's staying with this woman who is going to take these euthanasia drugs at some point, he too says, 
I, I, I know this must be very difficult, but I, I think you're doing the right thing. And I would want somebody to do that for me too. So, and I think that that is, uh, I don't think everyone feels that way, far from it, but I think a lot of people do feel that way. The novel's title comes from Simone Weil, the philosopher whom you quote in the epigraph, the love of our neighbor in all its fullness simply means being able to say to him, what are you going through? What does that line mean to you? Well, I th- and, you know, when I, I came across that a long, long time ago in one of her essays, and I thought it was so striking, you know, because so well put and so so true, and to me, it really, it really means exactly that. By saying to him, what are you going through? Uh, you know, the implication is, I'm listening. I'm, I'm listening. Um, it isn't necessarily that, tell me what, what's the trouble? What are you suffering? What, what's going on? I, I will help. I will know what to do. I'm here. Uh, because you don't know what it is. And you don't know you might be helpless in the face of whatever that person is going through. But the one thing that you can do is give it your attention. Give it your full attention. And that, she's saying, that's what, that's what you know, love thy neighbor means. There, there's a refrain in this book. This is the saddest story I have ever heard, and it's the opening line from Ford Maddox Ford's The Good Soldier. Perhaps more so nowadays, I'll hear someone say they don't want to read or watch something sad. What do you think about that? Well, you know, this is the saddest story I ever heard. Is a little bit like um, women's stories are often sad stories. Uh, you know, really, the saddest? I mean, that's why I, I, I keep bringing that up, because sometimes I, I say, oh, yeah, here we have another one, yet another saddest story. You know, I, I say in the book, when these two women have watched this, uh, this wonderful uh, movie, Make Way for Tomorrow, from 1937, the director's Leo McCary, that it's an unbelievably sad. Um, Orson Welles called it the saddest, the saddest movie ever made. And you know they've watched it. They're weeping, and I say they're not. Not that they're, you know, not that they regret having watched it, because a a good story, beautifully told, no matter how sad, lifts you up. So you know, there's this. There's different kinds of of sad. But if something is is sad and meaningful and beautiful and, uh, you know, moving in a certain way, I think it's very uplifting. I've always felt that way. There is another kind of story that is bleak, you know, and even those can be brilliant and wonderful. But I I really make a distinction. I, I, uh, you know, usually something that I admire and that has a, a, a lot of meaning for me will will be sad and can even be bleak but the very fact that it has been made into something meaningful by another person another human being and presented to me you know as look at this see this 
it isn't something I would ever want to avoid. Yeah, I could, I could be in the most depressed mood and I, I would not want to avoid it. In fact, I think it would be helpful. There is a certain kind of violence that I feel differently about. I mean, it, I, I, um, I, I have anxiety about uh, watching movies in which people seriously mistreat one another or some other living being. That that I do find very very difficult, but that's not sad. That's that's brutal. That I have a trouble with brutal stories. Friendship is a theme of both your recent novels, The Friend and What Are You Going Through. It's maybe not as sexy or dramatic as as romance, but it's certainly rich terrain. What interests you about friendship? Well, everything. I think um, now, I think there are a lot of novels about friendship. But, you know, when I was a coming of age, it wasn't so common. You know, uh, there were, you know, novels were, were generally about family and marriage and, and, and love relationships, not so much about friendship. And, you know, the idea being, I think, that a friendship is not as important as a love relationship or a family relationship. And, uh, you know, to me, I, I, think it, I think it really is. I think, I think friendship has been un- undervalued in novels. And, um, and so that was just something that I was interested in. I mean, for example, you know, it wasn't that long ago that Ferrante started writing her books about the friendship between the, 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 the two Italian women that started with um, My Brilliant Friend. And everywhere that this was, because it was so popular and beloved and uh, it got so much attention, everywhere uh, people you know, made a big thing about the fact that it was about that friendship. That's how unusual it was for the writer to give that kind of attention to a long, long friendship between two women. You know, and I just think it's, I think it's very rich. It certainly has been for me because I've written a lot about friendship. It's great to have the chance to talk to you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Sigrid Nunez at her home in New York in 2021. If you or someone you know is struggling, you can contact Talk Suicide Canada toll-free at 1-833-456-4566 or go to talksuicide.ca for resources in your province. Sigrid Nunez's books, The Friend and What Are You Going Through, are available in paperback from Riverhead Books. Her new novel, The Vulnerables, is set during the early days of the COVID lockdown. Here, the narrator is looking after a miniature macaw parrot for a friend of a friend. Today's show was produced by senior producer Sandra Rabinovich. Katie Swales is also producer. Melissa Gismondi is associate producer, with thanks to Olivia Pascarelli. Technical operations by Emily Chiarvesio. I'm Eleanor Wachtel. Next week, the American writer and translator Lydia Davis. From her mysterious found stories to new versions of Proust and Flaubert, Lydia Davis is surprising and memorable. 
Her new book, a collection of 144 short stories, is called Our Strangers. That's next week. I hope you'll join me. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.